morning, everyone. Hopefully you have uh, had a great weekend. I know uh, many of you have had weekend festivities. Graduation, how many of you in this room graduated yesterday? <laughs> Melissa, good work. Uh, I know there's several from our community that graduated yesterday. Uh, Jeff, the church planter, Jeff Reinhardt, that went and planted in Coeur d'Alene, he also graduated with Melissa yesterday, and uh, they did their master's work at Whitworth, and just awesome accomplishment. How many of you, here's another one, how many of you went and ran like a half marathon this morning? Anyone? Oh, Melissa! Oh, wow! Unbelievable! That is amazing. Yes, I feel like a slacker. I've done nothing over the last couple days. Um... No, we uh, had some fun yesterday. I uh, coach little kids soccer. You guys, a lot of you know that. And uh, had a little bit of a tournament yesterday, and they played well. It was a blast. Seven, eight-year-old little strapping young lads um, out there on the field and just had a, a fabulous time. We are uh, in the midst of a series in the book of Acts. This series will uh, go for a while because we are kind of hunkering down and digging into all the little nuances of this book. It is, uh, it's been a good start, but it's also been a, a crazy start. Um, if you look at the beginning of Acts, it's pretty wild. It's got a lot of stuff going on. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at some of the, um, the wild stuff in this particular passage. But I'll just remind you where we've been the last couple weeks, because I think the stories are fascinating. You have uh, this first interesting little piece where the ascension takes place. Jesus is... Uh, speaking to his disciples, he's uh, giving them his final instructions, sending them out into the world, saying, I want you to declare the truth of the gospel to everyone. And then uh, we kind of acted it out that first week where uh, all of a sudden clouds come, he vanishes, he takes off, no longer present. He is uh, at the right hand of the Father, and then all the disciples are going, like, what are we supposed to do now? Are we supposed to keep waiting we're supposed to stand here and look up into the sky. And two gentlemen come down and they say, what are you staring at? This makes no sense. Get, get to work. Head to Acts, or head to, in Acts, head to Jerusalem and wait there for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so you have this crazy scene that takes place at the beginning. Then you move into a little bit further into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, and there's this replacing of Judas. Last week, Kevin talked about it and uh, highlighted a couple aspects. One, the beauty of the church. That the church is getting started and uh, it looks beautiful. And yet there's some sticky pieces to it, but yet it's a beautiful church. And then also highlighted the faith of the apostles. That they were willing to kind of cast lots and allow God to determine the outcome of who it was that was supposed to replace Judas. And Kevin and I have talked about this and the book of Acts quite a bit as we've been going into this study, because see, some people view the book of Acts as prescriptive, that what actually happens in Acts, we're supposed to, to the best of our ability, copy. That it's the perfect illustration and perfect model of what it means to be the church. And if only someday our church could look just like the early church, we'd be perfect, right? So you hear one particular strand of people talking about Acts that way, another group of people tends to talk about Acts in more of a descriptive fashion, meaning that what happened is a history. It's just information put down on a page that reveals to us 
the very beginnings of the church, what went right along with what went wrong. That there are certain things that maybe we shouldn't model or copy as much as other things. So, we'll just give you a little twist on what Kevin spoke into last week. There's this other way of perhaps viewing Acts chapter 1, and that is that the apostles actually screwed the whole thing up. Yes, that they didn't do what they were supposed to do. See, there was a command from God, and the command was what? To wait for the Holy Spirit, to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. While they were in the midst of their waiting, we realized that 500 were given the command, only 120 are waiting, right? So first of all, we have a whole crew of people that just kind of ignored the instruction. The rest of the crew, 120, are waiting, and in their waiting, I believe they grew impatient. Holy Spirit hadn't arrived yet, and so into the midst of that they go, well, what should we do? Oh, I got an idea. How about we elect another apostle to take the place of Judas? Makes sense. It needs to happen, right? And so they start to go about it. They cast the lots, which is the last time that we see lots ever used. We see it used throughout the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. Then we don't see it again, because why? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come. Now the Holy Spirit is the one that informs, gives direction, guides us into truth. And so they're no longer needing to cast lots. But prior to that, because they didn't wait, they casted lots. They chose a guy based on criteria that they established. He had to be there from the beginning till this point. And it's got to be one of these two. Roll the dice. Oh, it's going to be you. Perfect. And perhaps what they were supposed to do was to have waited for Paul. That maybe the central figure to the rest of the book of Acts was the one that God wanted to appoint to that position. Potentially. Not saying that that's the exact way it was supposed to go, but I think it's interesting for us to think that not only did the ascension have a crazy scene, then we move into... Acts chapter 1, this whole thing begins to go, kind of start going crazy. And then we get to Acts chapter 2. We find ourselves hoping that this scene would calm down a little. There would be some relief to all the craziness of the passage. And yet we find ourselves with 120 people in a small crammed room with a violent wind rushing in, with fire coming down and resting upon the heads of people without anyone being burned. Everybody leaving the room and speaking in numerous languages to a whole throng of people that had gathered because they heard the violent wind. And that is how we start Acts chapter 2. Just craziness is happening. All this noise, all this commotion. And if you're an Old Testament scholar, which I know many of you are, if you're an Old Testament scholar, or if you were familiar with the Torah and had spent a lot of time as a child, maybe in the Jewish days, with uh, Jesus having learned some of that, the history of the people of Israel, you would have noticed something radical that happened in Acts chapter 2 that would have reminded you of a passage way back at the beginning of the Scriptures. So you hear Acts 2, you hear all this commotion, you hear all this language, you hear all this babbling, and it should take you all the way back to Genesis. So in Genesis, here's what happens. We know that in chapter 1 and 2, God creates a beautiful garden. He creates people in His own image. Everything is perfect. It's the way that it's supposed to be. It's beautiful. Then in, Acts, or in Genesis chapter 3, 
we know that the fall begins, right? Sin enters the world, destruction and death start to come and creep in. Everything starts to go haywire. Three, it builds. Four, it's getting worse. Five, even worse. We get to chapter six. And then God goes, man, I am grieved that we even went down this road. We're going to start over. So he takes eight people, pulls them aside, absolutely destroys the rest of the world by having them all drown, um, completely floods the earth, moves to this place where now he has eight, moves the eight back into this place. He says to them, hey, here's the deal. I want you to, to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. And I want you to establish um, towns and villages and continue to, you know, to grow as a people. They all had one language at that point. They all start to disperse. And then they all decide in Genesis chapter 11 not to. They said, no, it's going to be different than that. And here's what it says in Genesis chapter 11. Maybe you're familiar with the Tower of Babel. It says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Two major kind of agendas with this first idea. They say, we're going to build this tower. It's going to go to the heavens. It's going to be a place of worship. We're going to find ourselves there. We're all going to stay together. We're going to do this for two reasons. Reason number one, to make a name for themselves. The agenda was, we're going to be recognized. People are going to know who we are. We're going to be famous. This is going to be the best thing ever. Tallest building. It's going to be incredible. A feat of engineering genius, we want credit, we want honor. Second point was we don't want to be scattered. So Christ, God, had given them an exact command, which is to say, scatter throughout all the earth and multiply. And they said, "Mm, no, we kind of want to do our own thing. We're going to stick together. We're going to be all one. We're going to have our own single language. And so God enters this with their clear agenda being pride, their clear agenda being their own rule, and reign over everything. And it says this in the passage, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. They left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel because the Lord confused their language. And then the text goes on to say that he spread them throughout the whole earth. Eventually, he did or he forced them in many ways to do what he asked them to do. But he did it by the confusion of language. So you have this group of people rejecting God, rejecting his commands, his desires, forcing their own agenda, declaring that they will become famous and God in the midst of that creates confusion with language. Then we come to Acts chapter 2. And what we find in Acts chapter 2 is that the Pentecost is the great reversal to the Tower of Babel. That everything that began to take place there, every, all the dispersion, all of the language barriers, everything that began to divide and break humanity apart into pieces, a manifestation of the curse, all of that is reversed at Pentecost. The very things that took place then, the symbols, the metaphors, the meaning, all in Acts chapter 2 leads us to an understanding that God is saying, well, I'm going to rechange everything. And I'm going to start here. 
Let me give you a couple pictures of why you can see this in the text. First of all, in Genesis, there's a strong emphasis on the spirit of man, that man is choosing what to do. And in the New Testament, you see the spirit of God moving in amongst the people. They're making a name for themselves in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there's this focus on the Lord. That it's not about them or their agenda. It's about waiting patiently for the Spirit. You have languages used in both. In the one case, to confuse. And in the new, Acts chapter 2, to bring understanding. To begin to declare the Gospel. You have the human plan that's completely thwarted. And then you have God's plan moving forward with His agenda. And then last but not least... God came down initially to scatter and disperse, and now He comes down to regather and to bring unity and connection. And so at Pentecost, God is starting to form this eschatological community, this community that lasts to the end of the ages, that He's forming His church. He's creating the very beginning through the work of the Holy Spirit of all that we understand to be true of the universal church today and what will ultimately be true of His kingdom in the future, and it begins at this moment, the reversal of Babel. And yet, as I was thinking through this whole passage and comparing Babel to Acts chapter 2, one of the thoughts that struck me is this, that I would argue that many of us, and I would even argue that perhaps the church, is still going about trying to create our own Babel. Instead of us getting on board with the new agenda of God, the hopes and plans of this new community, we instead find ourselves building our own little Babel. Here's a couple ways we do it. I think, like Babel, we are tempted to build monuments to ourselves. Just speaking for my own self, Maybe this isn't you, but sometimes I see us as society get wrapped up in prestigious titles, wanting to make sure that we have impressive assets, that there's a level of recognition that we've achieved. And so we start building this little babble that looks like a career or a set of degrees or some accomplishments or a certain amount in a bank account. We even do this with churches. And if you look across the landscape of the church, There are so many churches fighting for Babel. I was talking to a pastor recently who uh, was just recounting that he wanted his church to be known. Everybody needs to know the church, this church. Well, why don't we start with everybody needs to know Jesus, and then that can be like kind of a secondary thing, right? Right, that, it's interesting that John the Baptist didn't come into, you know, the the world and move into ministry and go, I must become greater, he must become less. But that's what we do with Babel, right? We start to reverse it where we say, well, no, it's really, it's about me and my goal and my, and we're going to build something instead. John the Baptist walks into the scene and he goes, I must become less, he must become more. I must become small, he must be big. I must be weak, he must be strong. All these ways of describing that it's not about me. It's not about us, it's about Him. And so we find ourselves building Babel. In one sense, the story of Babel is just like this crazy, weird, confusing thing. And then in another sense, we find that maybe it's just a whole lot more familiar than we'd like to admit. I think we're also tempted to determine our own fate. So like Babel, we go, hey, we're going to set our own agenda. 
We're going to rule. We're going to be the ones that decide what goes and whose agenda gets top priority. I, many of you know I have four children. The youngest of my four is three and a half years old. Uh, her name is Evie, and uh, she is right at that stage where she's exploring life, learning more, and uh, starting to like form some really strong opinions about what she desires and doesn't desire. And the other day, she's standing there looking just perfect, you know, cute, sweet, lovely little girl. And uh, I told her, like, hey, Evie, you need to do this, then you need to do this. And she looks at me and she goes, you're not the boss of me. And I go, actually, let, well, let's, let's reconsider. I am, and let's talk about that a little bit, all right? Um, and, and right away, you're not the boss of me. And you know what's so crazy about that is I think we say that so often. Though we look up and we go, well, you know, you're not the boss of me. I get to call the shots. I get to decide, you know, that it's my, it, this isn't what I wanted, God, so I'm going to kind of change the script. And so with Babel, we find that maybe we're starting to become, as the end of the Evictus poem talks about, the master of our fate and the captain of our soul, that we get to decide. And so we find ourselves building our own little Babel. I think another way, like Babel, we do that is we have this confused understanding of language. If you look at the way we communicate with one another, consider language today, and I'm not talking about foreign language and how to ask for the bathroom in another country. What I'm talking about is we tend to speak over people and through people and have lost sight of how to speak to people. That we've got issues related to communication, to language. Two days ago, my wife and I are on a, a little run with uh, Evie again. She's in the stroller. We're, uh, we're going down sidewalk, coming to this intersection and uh, the plan was when we got to the intersection, we were going to just turn on the sidewalk and go different direction. We had hit the block, and we knew what our distance was. And so we're on our way. We get there, and there's a car that's kind of riding down the street just parallel with where we're running. And so we get to the corner, and we turn. And this car wanted to turn, too. But he was afraid, I think, that we were going to go straight, and he would turn into us. So at the last minute, he like kind of slows down really hard before the turn, which is okay, but the person behind him didn't, right? So that person behind him just crushes the back of his car. They both jump out of the car, and they started talking over each other, through each other. There, there was a lot of foreign language, too, I think, that I heard. And, and they're just going back and forth, right? And, and there was this massive confusion. Well, you were supposed to turn, well, you didn't stop. All this noise, right? Nobody was listening to each other. Everyone was talking. Walter Brueggemann was discussing uh, Genesis chapter 11, and he made this statement that I thought was interesting. He said, the Tower of Babel story, which is usually translated, they couldn't understand one another, could also be translated, they wouldn't listen to each other. Part of the babble that we build is we want our voice to be heard and we don't care to listen to the other person. That it becomes about us. And so babble is this building, this erecting of a, a building, erecting of a life that is inconsistent with the teachings of Jesus. And so then what you see in Acts chapter 2 is a dramatic reversal. 
Everything I want to share for the next few moments are just truths from Acts chapter 2 that I think highlight how God, through His Spirit, began to reverse all of the curse of Babel. How God, through His Spirit, began to highlight certain truths for us that we could live into. And I, while doing study, I probably wrote down 10 or 15 different. I'm not going to go over all of them, don't worry. I'm just going to cover a few that I think stand out that uh, the text makes really clear for us related to what Pentecost teaches us. So Pentecost reminds us of a few things. The first thing is this, that the Spirit is most visibly present in community. Pentecost should remind us that the Spirit is most visibly present in community. If you look at the first verse of chapter 2, it says this. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They had all gathered together. They were all meeting together. They were worshiping, praying, as the text said. There was a true sense that they were a community or a family that had gathered together for a purpose. And I think a lot of times when we begin to relate to the Spirit, we try to relate to the Spirit on a very individual level. So we do this in all of our Christianity. Because we're such an individualistic society, we talk so much about me, my own devotions, my own relationship with God. Everything's about me, 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 God, 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 right? And rarely do we talk about how this vertical relates to the horizontal. That if we don't, we can't actually be in wrong relationship with others and right relationship with God at the same time, and yet we act like we can. We start to create this thing where if everything vertically is okay, if I've read my Bible, if I've said my prayers, if I've done my little duty, then everything is cool in the world, even if I hate my neighbor, right? That's a very individualistic perspective when it comes to our relationship with God. But Scripture makes it very clear that when we talk about relationship with God, we talk about it in relationship to corporate, to community, to the body. The body of Christ is not just a single individual's body, but the whole church collective together, the universal body of Christ. And so what I think sometimes happens is we find ourselves wondering why the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, and it's because we're not looking for the Holy Spirit where community is. The Holy Spirit is most present when we're together in relationship. When we pray, if you look throughout the New Testament, when prayer happened, it wasn't that the Holy Spirit was most visible when they were in their prayer closet. He was most visible when they were all together in prayer. Where is the Holy Spirit most miraculous in the New Testament? When the body of Christ is together. All throughout Scripture you see it. Where two or three are gathered together, crazy stuff happens. That's what the Bible says. It's my version. Right? Crazy stuff happens because the Spirit moves in ways that are unique to the fact that we're in life together, that we're a family, that we're a body. That's why he uses those terms over and over and over again. But too often, we think of it again as individual. When God gave the Spirit, He gave gifts to everyone to be used together. That's why He shows up most visibly when we're in community. So here's my little challenge to you with this first idea of Pentecost. If you're not seeing the Holy Spirit show up in your life, if you're wondering why He's not as actively present as you would like, or as at least the Scriptures seem to indicate that He is, the first place I would look is how close are you with the rest of the body of Christ? 
Are you engaged deeply with other people in such a way that you see the Spirit moving among all of us together? Because He might not be active right now in your little teeny slice of the world, but He might be at your neighbor's and down the street. And then together we see His active movement. Let's uh, skip ahead, uh, Shane, to this one. Um, Pentecost reminds us of this. And remind us of the scandalously inclusive, reconciling, multicultural, unifying nature of Christianity. Can I get an amen? amen? That's right. Okay? This is a huge, huge concept of Pentecost. That there are amazing things happening that we take for granted when we read it. We read it and we go, yeah, tongues of fire, that's really cool. Spirit came and dwelled, that's really awesome. But we, I think, overlook these pieces of the the um, inclusive, reconciling, multicultural nature of Christianity. We miss out on some unique stuff. So in Acts chapter 2, this is what the text says. You can look up on the screen. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men and women from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. It goes on to list 15 people groups or 15 nations that were present that had all gathered for the great feast. So all of these groups of people had gathered. The feast was about to take place. The mighty rushing wind comes. They all get to this place. The apostles walk out and then they begin to hear in all in their own languages. So if you see this little map, what you see is Jerusalem, that God had gathered all the people that he needed to begin the work of spreading the gospel around the world, brought them to a single place, allowed them to hear the gospel in their language. 3,000 were added to their number that day. A couple days later, another couple thousand. A couple days later, another couple thousand. Those people then, what did they do? They went back home. They dispersed around the entire region. He lists places that are within the Roman Empire as well as places outside of the Roman Empire. The point that he's making in this dramatic list is that the gospel moved radically among people of all kinds of nationalities like that. So, a couple little points to highlight as we look at this idea. First of all, the gospel is inclusive. What's interesting is this, that Pentecost could have happened, God could have done it any way he would have chosen, and he could have had every single person hear it all in one language. I'm sure he would have chosen English. And I'm sure he would have had everyone in the entire room just know, oh, I don't know what language this is, but I get it, I understand it, it makes sense to me. He could have gone that route. But I think in him going that route, we would have, and the people would have missed, the universal intent of the Gospel. That the Gospel is not just for one people group, it's not just for one language, It's not just for one race. It is for all people, universally, everywhere. doesn't matter tribe, nationality, etc. You get the idea. That there is a universal aspect to the Gospel going forth that's very clear and very evident that God is inclusive of all people as He makes the Spirit move among the church here. Second thing is that the Gospel is reconciling. What we talked about at the beginning is that this is the reversal of Babel. And at Babel, you began to see this massive fragmentation of humanity. 
a breakdown of all people. There was division all over the world. It happened because of national or language, but then it became nationality, it became race, it became further fragmented. Fragmentation continues to grow and grow and grow around our world. And what the gospel and what Acts 2 and the Pentecost speaks to is this idea that part of what God desires is for humanity to be brought together, for there to be reconciliation, for there to be a group of people brought together in a healing manner because of the gospel. If I was to make one criticism of the church, and some of you could go, well, I could make a lot of criticisms, but yes, there, there are criticisms to make. But if I was to make one, I would say the one thing that the church needs to look into is this. That the church should be front and center on reconciliation. In fact, Jesus says that He has given us the gospel of reconciliation. But I think the church is not front and center. What the society needs, though, is the church to be at the forefront of reconciliation. Racial reconciliation, we need to embrace diversity. I think we need to be multicultural, multinational church. That's who we are called to be. That's what the Pentecost tells us we're about. That the gospel extends to all people. And I think many times what we find ourselves doing is just further living into the curse of Babel. We just find ourselves congregating in groups that all look the same, act the same, speak the same, and we're trying to build little empires, but God is looking for a radical different version of what it means to be one body, one universal church. That together, all nations, all people, all people groups, all races, all forms of economic status are all in one, in unity. That's what the Gospel communicates. That's what the unified church is to be about. The reason that people don't see the Kingdom of God expressed in ways that I think God prayed for, desired, Jesus even in John chapter 17 prayed for, is because we are not communicating to the world what it means to love those that are quite radically different from us. There's one area that the church needs to live into. It's this. Because not only is the church about reconciliation, I think the church and the gospel is multicultural. That when Jesus had all these languages communicated to all at once, what he was saying again is that there's no language or people group that has precedence in the Christian faith. That everybody is on equal footing before him. I would even go as far as to say that by having the languages communicated to all of the people, what it meant was, he was saying that you're not, your Christianity, your relationship with God does not change your nationality, it does not change your customs, it does not change your culture, it does not change any of the things that make us unique. See, we need uniformity, we don't, and, and we need unity, not uniformity. What we need is diversity in the midst of our unity. And the Pentecost speaks into this very idea. Let me challenge you with one thing. To walk away from this concept with this idea. That when we participate in activities that allow us to get to know our neighbors of a different culture, that we are actually opening up paths for the Spirit to work. Again, part of why maybe we're not seeing the Spirit move in unique ways 
is because we're not opening up pathways for him to work in. And it begins by loving our neighbor. Another, I'll give you two more thoughts as we close. Two more thoughts. Um, Pentecost reminds us that we are powerful. Throughout this text, what you see is the Spirit of God entering into the lives of people and powerful things happening. All throughout the book of Acts and beyond, you see the power of the Spirit. And we are powerful. But I think when we say that, Pentecost scares us. We're scared to be powerful. I would much rather be meek. I'd much rather be passive. I'd much rather just kind of sit back and let somebody else take the lead, take charge. I can declare, you know, like, well, I've got a lot of things going on in life. And, and just kind of let someone else step up. But see, here's what's so true about Pentecost is that you, if you have the Spirit in you, if you are a child of God, you are powerful. You've probably heard the quote by Nelson Mandela that said that our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I don't know if you've heard that statement before, but I think part of why we fear the fact that we are powerful is because having power demands responsibility. And again, if the church... If we, because we are the church, could grasp something, it is that when that power was given to you, it requires something of you. It requires something of me. I can't receive the power and then just do nothing with it. I now am responsible for the way in which the world sees the kingdom of God. I'm responsible to be the very minister of reconciliation that we were talking about before. That I'm responsible to live out what it means to reverse the curse of Babel. That's my calling. Why? Because I'm powerful. Why? Because the Holy Spirit resides in me. That's your calling too. And sometimes I think that scares us. But Pentecost reminds us that we're powerful. Last point is this. Kind of silly, but at the very end of the text, um, it's clear that this is what Luke meant. That Pentecost reminds us that if you follow the Spirit, people will think you're drunk. Okay, here's what I mean by that. It's kind of a joke, but it's kind of serious at the same point. That people misinterpret, people misunderstand the actions, the decisions, the lifestyle, and the posture of people who are filled with the Spirit. If you live in such a way that you are so filled with the Spirit, people will look at you and go, you must be drunk because you're crazy. Because they'll look at your life and they'll say, wait a second. So you're telling me that you are a person that is living with radical generosity, radical hospitality, that you welcome the stranger, that you love the neighbor, you love your enemy, that you are willing to forgive, not just once, but like 70 times 7 and beyond that you're, you're willing to go the extra mile, that you're willing to sacrifice your own desires for the desires of someone else, that you actually believe that God is your Father that requires you to obey Him, that desires for you to live in such a way as to please 
Him to demonstrate to the world His greatness. You start adding all these things up and people are going to go, wait a second, you're just weird. Not because you dress different, not because you listen to different music, not because you're just weird and you show up to church on Sunday mornings. No. It's because your life is so radically different that people will look at it and say, something is up with them. Why? Because they are filled with the Spirit. What Luke wanted all of us to grasp in this, he says it this way, that when Pentecost had come, when the day had been fulfilled, fulfilled, the whole room was filled with the mighty wind and the people were filled with the Spirit. That whatever the Spirit is doing in you is full and complete. It's never partial. It's never incomplete. It's never half effort. It's full. Right? And that power, that strength, that energy, that dynamic relationship is in you and I as followers of Jesus. Which makes us powerful, but also demands that we live in a way that when people look at it, they go, these people must be drunk. Something's different. And it stands out and it's radical. So the Pentecost reminds us that we are to live into this idea of community, that the Spirit moves in community, that we are to be the kind of people that are reconciling, that we understand the inclusive nature of Christianity, and that we are people that are willing to act in such a way that demonstrates the power of the Spirit through us. Let me close with this quote. We're going to take communion, and I just thought this quote really speaks to this idea that where the Spirit is, the church is, and where the church is, grace is. It says this, Where the church is, there is also the Spirit of God. And where the Spirit of God is, there are also the church and all grace. See, as we take communion over these next few moments, I think it's important for us to remember that Acts 2, this mighty rushing wind came in, totally changed the way we look at the world, began to start the body of Christ in a unique and dynamic way, and then gave us the privilege of gathering together on a regular basis to remember that it was Jesus Christ's body that was broken and His blood that was shed so that we might have grace. So that we might have a relationship with God. So that we might have the Spirit. And so this morning as you take communion, my encouragement to you is to be mindful of that moment. To be mindful of that Pentecost where the Spirit came and dwelt among the people in such a powerful, tangible way. And we ask that He would do that again with us this morning. That in our breaking of the bread and in our drinking of the wine, that we would recognize His presence unique. Let me pray.